Welcome to the League of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Davis. Today, I am pleased to introduce my guest, Dr. Charles C. Davis, Jr. Charles is the Director of Comprehensive Services for Evolve 502 in Louisville, Kentucky. In this role, Charles is responsible for developing community-wide supports to impact students and families along the cradle-to-career pipeline. This work is accomplished by regularly convening partners from the public, private, and philanthropic sectors. A Dayton, Ohio native, Charles earned his bachelor's degree in history from Eastern Michigan University, his master of education degree at Antioch University McGregor, and his doctorate in educational leadership, evaluation, and organization development from the University of Louisville. Charles holds graduate certificates from the University of Pennsylvania and Georgetown University and is a national certified diversity professional. He is also in the current cohort of the Executive Leadership Program at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, sponsored by the Allstate Foundation. He is married to Dr. Latrice Best and is the father of Charles III and Cullen. Welcome to the League of Leaders, Charles. Well, I guess I should do the Detroit welcome of what up, though? What up, though? What up, though? Honorary Detroit. Right, 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 right. It, it's good to have you on the podcast and, um, you know, I felt it was appropriate to get you on in season two. Um, you know, so we're really kind of cutting our teeth at this game. And, you know, I thought about putting you on here for a while, uh, but it was kind of weird. So I'm like, like, this is my best friend here. And I was like, well, he actually has a dope story to tell. And I feel like there's a lot of people can get from it and it is appropriate for the League of Leaders. So here you are. Here I am. So just give you a little backstory. I always like to share how I know people. And so Charles is probably, well, he might be one of the longest continuous friendships that I have, which spans back yes, to I would say that. 1997, as we both entered Eastern Michigan University as freshmen, met at Put in Putnam Hall over there. And it's been... It's been on since moving weekend, you know, 20, was that 24 years ago at this point? Yeah, the uh, the minority weekend that we paid extra just to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Yeah, let's get all, let's get all the, the people of color together and um, bring their parents and both our parents just kind of like dipped off like y'all good and I'm like, all right, I'm stuck up here. And it's, it's, it's been a wild ride, man. Um, you know, there are very few people who know, who know me like Charles. And I think he probably knows me better than some of my relatives at this point. You know, we've just been kind of glued together for the past 24 years, been at my wedding, all of that good stuff, like been there for every peak and valley of my yep. professional and personal life. Uh, so it's a pleasure to have, have you here on the show. And, you know, we do give you honorary buffs uh, as an honorary Detroiter for the time you spent in Michigan getting down and hanging with us. So absolutely. So I want to bring you on today. I was kind of talk about your career and, and, and um, get some wisdom um, in a few different areas and looking at your career progression, there's a common thread and that's been working with youth. How did you get started down that path? Well, that as a career, um, I actually, so going back to Eastern Michigan University, um, I, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do coming out of high school. And so 
education is sort of the family business. Um, lots of aunts and uncles. My mom is a teacher. My sister is currently a teacher. My dad uh, was a teacher and a, a school principal. Uh, so I've been around education my entire life. And it was like literally the one thing that I did not want to do. And so I went to <laughs> um, Eastern Michigan to um, major in computer information systems. So this is 1997, fall 1997, as you said, you know, the internet's just now popping. You know, we got the, uh, I remember my first AOL chat room, like talking basketball or something like 97. Um, Real Telnet like Banyan. Yeah, the like yeah, like the, the 30 character uh, email address. And so, you know, IT was not fun back then, right? So um, it sounded cool because I had a cousin who was kind of dabbling in some stuff at IBM, I mean, excuse me, NCR. Um, and so I was like, you know, this is possibly something I could do. And I had an intern, I had a summer internship in CIS. Um, and I think that honestly, that's what really just killed my desire. Well, it was two things. One, it was an internship because again, um, IT wasn't fun like it is now, coding and games and web and you know, there was barely an internet, you know, to really play. And I mean, back in back in our day, because we had to take computer science at Eastern and you were taking some other classes, but I mean, like Fortran and Pascal and yeah. all these like crude programming languages. <laughs> yeah, like the, the little gray computers with the black screen and the orange characters on it. Like that's what I was coding on, COBOL programming. So the first thing that killed it was that internship because this was during the time of um, um, uh, Y2K. So everything was geared towards, you know, the world was going to shut down because of Y2K. And so in my internship, I had to sit and I had to sit in the corner of this, this corporation I was working at. And I had reams of those dot, that dot matrix paper. And I had to literally go and mark off parentheses and uh, hyphens and slash marks and then go into Fortran and change the coding because they thought that their financial systems were going to shut down uh, for Y2K. And of course, nothing happened. So I was like, this cannot be my life. Um, <laughs> the second thing was when I was actually at Eastern in COB, in the College of Business, um, everybody knows, you know, by now that, you know, I could always do the work, but I was not the most serious student in undergrad. So like my grades were terrible, <laughs> uh, but I had a ton of fun at Eastern, had a great time. Absolutely. Um, but, <laughs> but one of these classes that I said I was going to really take seriously and buckle down was my first programming class, which is in, in COBOL. So again, sitting, and again, you know, computers are not, you know, ubiquitous how they are now. So I had to go to COB, sit down in the basement, get on one of those little computers and just like code. And I spent like two weeks on this one programming you know I'll, I forget even what I was supposed to do something in business or whatever and like I took it to my professor like Professor Turnage Paul Turnage and I said Dr. Turnage like I don't know what I'm doing and he like pulled my program up on his screen did like two crease strokes and like okay it's finished and I was like you know what I'm done like that broke my back like if he can fix this and I've been sitting here looking at this for like three weeks and I can't figure out anything um so it really just kind of put me into a um, I, an identity crisis because I had just made up in my mind that like I was going to be this computer whiz or whatever and like I just didn't know what to do so I ended up switching you know after talking to my parents and kind of having like a little mini breakdown um 
I switched my major to history education. Uh, the school of education also had a bunch of prerequisites and I was like, man, I'm just like done with school. I'm just trying to graduate. Uh, so instead of history education, I just switched to history since I had, you know, a lot of classes um, that already would transfer over. And um, I ended up graduating with a bachelor's in history, not knowing at the time that you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in history. <laughs> so I ended mm -hmm. up going back and getting my master's in education, you know, in the end. But really, education has always been around me. Um, I've always worked in you know, youth programs. Even when I was in college, I had a job at the, uh, the Children's Institute, which was daycare at Eastern. Um, so, you know, I know people always laugh, imagine me, you know, changing diapers and, you know, mm -hmm. working like 18 month olds, but that was my job. So, you know, I've just always loved being around kids and, you know, being around, um, education in some regards. So, uh, like I said, in a lot of regards, it was like kind of just a family business. That's, um, uh, an interesting path there. And I can imagine you being in you know, the computer science field, you know, what even, it wasn't even like IT back then. It was just computer science. It was real, yeah. it was, yeah, it was real stuffy and, and dry. And, and I, I think we, I know my cousin, he started at Eastern and I, I'm also at, I think that same program and they were still using punch cards for programming at that time. Like this is, I know it sounds so crazy. If we got some young folks listening, they're like, what the hell are y'all talking about? And I'm like, just keep in mind, you know, I'm just kind of segueing here a little bit, but just, the lapses and leaps in technology from when we started college to now, like what we're seeing sounds so foreign and just so crazy, but I definitely couldn't see that as your career, especially just seeing how you've taken to uh, the youth and, and education. Um, and so after you kind of make that jump and you know, I remember when you went back and got your master's and um, you know, the first half of your career, uh, you had a few stops in the nonprofit sector and you know what did you love about the earlier stint in a nonprofit world, like the the Dayton Urban League, and then also the uh, the National Underground Railroad uh, Freedom Center? Um, well, you know, so be before I started at the uh, at the Urban League, you know, what I always tell people is like, so I try to be like extremely transparent, especially with kids, like. You know, I think a lot of people they like to you know get up on their soapbox or you know they you know have their fancy suit and their you know pocket square and they try to tell you how they did everything right um i did a whole lot wrong right and you know through god's grace you know i was able to come back on the other come out on the other side but i think that the common thread even with this podcast is just been relationships right so mm -hmm. relationships and people just looking out for a knucklehead kid <laughs> uh really propelled me along in that regard i've really i've lived really a charm life like um, because I would never have really imagined that I'd be in any of these stops along the way. It was just truly happenstance or relationships or meeting people. So when I was in high school, you know, my mother was not the, like, I was not able to just like have these free summers and just run around and <laughs> like every summer or every day after school, like I was in something like I was in, you know, I played football, I played baseball which you'll have your podcast listeners will have to ask Kevin about his uh, baseball prowess one day. And he knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, football, baseball, I was in band, I was in you know, National Art Society, I was in student government, I was in um, all these programs. But one of the things that I was in was a youth program through the Dayton Urban League. 
And so uh, there was a lady who was one of her sorority members, my mother and my sister are deltas. And so she got me into this youth program. It was like, like a youth leadership program. And so I really took to it and really loved the Urban League. Um, and so when I came back to Dayton, I was like, I was working temp jobs. Because again, you can't get a job uh, with a degree in history. And I really didn't have a plan. Like I didn't know what I was going to supposed to do, which is really interesting having, you know, two parents in education. And I was just kind of so um, in the wind in many regards. So I worked at a temp agency, um, but because I had a lot of computer skills, again, you know, take, take it back to 2002, you know, we're not like we are now. Um, so I had you were, some computer You were good skills. at Lotus Notes. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, proficient in Excel. So I was at Robert Half Staffing Agency, right? And I was I was peeping game because people who were like going in and I could kind of hear what kind of jobs they were getting, the people who had better computer prowess were getting higher paying jobs, like they were on the list of jo available jobs. So I remember I sat there and I taught myself how to 10 key, like literally sitting mm. in the lobby because I heard somebody say that like they had a job that did 10 key, which was paying like, $15 an hour versus like $10 an hour. So I, I was just literally just sitting there like tapping my fingers on my lap, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, literally there. And so I got it back there and took the test and I'm like, Charles did great. And so like, I got one of those like $15 an hour jobs. And so I, I did like a couple of those uh, and I landed at Meet West Vaco, which is like me, Day Runner, Trapper mm -hmm. Keeper, all that. Yeah, It's from Dayton. Uh, shout out to Dayton, which is, you know, having some hard times, but you know, it was crazy. Like when you don't, as a kid, you don't know, but there were like three or four, like four or five, four to 500 companies there, yeah. you know, from NCR to the U.S. Baco, Reynolds and Reynolds, um, Standard Register, which is where my internship was at. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of stuff popping there, you know, and again, just like, you know, factory and stuff closing, which is a rust belt, you know, it's just, you know, falling on hard times, but, um, that put me into a position to work at me. Um, and so I could, um, I, you know, I, I would go to work every day, you know, it was fine. And again, I, I was selling stuff, you know, to like companies and, um, but you know, it was, it, it was a job, you know, it wasn't like a factory job, but it was a job. I mean, I literally, I just showed up, drank some nasty coffee, clocked out every day. And like, that was it. Uh, wasn't loving my life. And then I ran across um, one of my mentors um, when I was in a youth forum, that youth program at the Urban League, who was now a vice president at the Urban League. And I was like, hey, um, if anything ever comes up, you know, like, let me know. And like a week later, he called me and he said, I got this grant position. We just got this grant. Uh, it was working in schools to do this uh you know, for the uh, kind of dangerous minds kids, if you will, you know, trying to turn their <laughs> life around. <laughs> um, it was like, look, it pays $24,000, uh, but I can get you an interview if you want it. And I was like, I want it. You know, still not even really, I mean, I'm living at home. Like I said, I, my mother made, basically made me move back to Dayton because she was like, you're just up there just twisting in the wind um, and you're not doing anything. So you need to come back here, figure out your life. And so I was living at home uh, making $24,000 a year working at the Urban League, but I was ecstatic, you know? And so from there, uh, there was another program that somebody had left for another position and I was able to work basically two jobs, um, doing my regular job during the day and then coming in in the evening 
in doing that other position. And so I got a little bit of a pay bump, um, gained a lot of experience, just understanding how grants work. Um, and I started my grad program during that time. And so, you know, one of the things that I recognized from that job, because I would have been per perfectly happy working at the Dayton Urban League to this day. Um, that was my life's dream. I was totally bought in. Um, the one thing that I learned, which has informed my professional career to this day, uh, sometimes when you come somewhere, they, they only remember you how they met you, mm -hmm. you know? So like I was doing the work of a project manager on this grant, but because I was still very much like the 16 year old kid in that youth program and yeah. I just contributed my way up, they never really saw that in like really kind of what my breaking point with the urban league was you know, we were in like a real danger of losing this grant because of some malfeasance. It wasn't malfeasance, but just bad reporting. And like, I would come in on weekends, I would stay extra on, you know, and I'm in grad school this time, right? I'm getting my master's. Um, I was doing all this stuff. And then finally we got right with the county who the grant was through. And so I'm like, bet, they're about to make me like the manager or whatever of this grant. And <laughs> they moved somebody, they were like, you know, thank you, but we're going to have, you know, Mr. XYZ take over, uh, who had no knowledge of the work whatsoever. Mm -hmm. He was just there, and he was old. Uh, and, like, at the time, I was, what, 26, maybe, you know. And so I was like, okay, so this this can't be it. You know, like, I can't keep doing all this work and never get recognized for it. Um, so... On a happenstance, I had I graduated, I got my master's, and I went down to Atlanta to party with a, a couple of friends, you know, one of which, you know, Eric, who I came up to Eastern with and mm -hmm. met Kevin at the same time. Uh, him and one of um, his friends who went to the University of Michigan, they were having a party. Um, I don't even remember why, but... Because it was a Tuesday. A, <laughs> yeah. That's how it was. They had a friend, so I was staying at the crib with them, and then they had a friend who I think that I had met a couple of times, uh, who just came down to Eastern to kick it or whatever, and we were just sitting around. It was like two, after the party, it was like two, three in the morning. We had just went to get some Popeyes from somewhere. They stayed in College Park, and we were just sitting around. And you know, Eric was like, "So what you gonna do now that you got your master's?" And I was like, "Man, I don't know. You know, I'm just kind of like here, yada yada yada." So the friend, whose name is Michael Griffin, uh, actually your frat, um, he was like wait, you just got a master's? And I was like, yeah. He's like, education? I was like, yeah. He's like, hey, you got a background in African-American studies? I was like, yeah. I'm like, where is this going? And so he was like, we just got a grant for this position at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. Um, are you interested? I was like, I'm not, I'm not not interested, you know? <laughs> so yeah. um, he was like, well, shoot me your resume. And like two weeks later, I had a new job. And so, again, it's just like, that's why I say, like, when people ask me, like, about goal setting and stuff all the time, like, I'm not always the best. Because, I mean, literally every job that I have has just kind of been, like, that kind of a chance encounter yeah. that I was there, they were there, and we just linked up. So, uh, but all those things were really good experiences. And, like I said, made me, you know, really kind of help to grow the beginnings of the professional I am today. There's a few things that, that you said that I just want to kind of pull out. And, you know, for me, it... It also just kind of um, validates why we got so close over the years. Um, 
you know, when you mentioned your mom always had you in some sort of after school activity or some kind of summer enrichment program, mm-hmm. that was the same thing in my household. You know, it, you know, during spring break, I got shipped off to do mission work down in Mendenhall, Mississippi, or doing some work up here. And then, and then during the school year, sent off uh, to the Mich- University of Michigan for uh, the math and science program, NHS sports, yeah. all of that. So like, I feel like we just had that, that same kind of upbringing and, you know, both being from cities in the Rust Belt, same type of thing. Um, and, you know, that energy is kind of attracted, but I, you know, I said that, I brought that part up to say that I do think that there's just such value in getting your kids super involved in those types of activities, that those types of things taught me how to network. They taught me how to work in groups with people that I did not know. Because as a child, you're used to just your neighborhood and your school, but you remove your you remove your child from that environment, put them somewhere else. They have to learn how to interact and engage, inter- uh, engage other people. So it teaches relationship building, it teaches networking, um, but it all, more importantly, like gives them something to do. So you're not just idle playing, you know, playing video games or even just playing basketball. Like we had to go figure that out. Oh, well, let me do this after I get back in this program. And you know, like I said, I brought that up because I feel like it's important that parents enroll their kids in those types of programs, those type of enrichment programs keep them going and keep their minds rolling. But and the other that, piece, just to inter- go ahead. Interject, but not just things that they're interested. I mean, their interests are cool, but like I was in everything. Like yeah. sometimes doing things that you don't, I mean, it's a shock to your system. Cause you know, most of those programs are like a week long. So you got to meet everybody like real quick. Yeah. You know, y'all become best friends in like five days. I'm like, all right, bye. <laughs> but <laughs> I had to do things that I wasn't comfortable with or that yeah. I didn't know anything about. And so it's just a shock to the system that you got to either, you know, sink or swim. Yeah. And there's, um, and you mentioned a piece around the the relationships, and you know, you talked about going down to Atlanta, hanging out with Eric and Travis and, and crew. And what's interesting about that as well is, you know, through through your relationship, you know, with Eric, who you knew from Dayton, um, you know, we all went to Eastern together. Like East, Eric is how I got my job at UIC. And so, to your point, it's good to have a strategy. It's good to have goals, but at the end of the day the way I see it is it's more about being prepared for when those opportunities come. You know, that one of my favorite quotes is uh, success is where preparedness and opportunity meet. And so if I stay ready, I don't have to get ready. So just like that chance interaction that you had down with uh, with my frat brother, you're ready to go. You're ready to go and make it happen. And I can't underscore that enough, how, how much that's in play, especially as your career advances, like just thinking about, the different roles that you've had. And we've had these conversations where you're like, oh, I just mm-hmm. messed on. So they're trying to get me to come do this. And it's because you spent time in the gym, you know, the, the, the figurative gym building your career and your, your skill sets that people are like, let me holler at him and he's ready to go. And people don't understand how that happens. And that takes mm-hmm. time. It takes time to build it. It takes time to refine your, your skill set, your abilities and all of that. It doesn't just happen overnight. There is no shortcut. You can get lucky that won't be the norm. So I just want to pull those two pieces out just around relationships and, and getting your kids um, involved in these, these activities um, when they're young, it, it pays such dividends and it makes life so much easier um, for the most part, I'll say that, for the most part um, forward. But so you mentioned a couple of the, the woes, um, you know, working for Urban League, you know, you're just kind of doing some kind of grunt work here and there and found a little bit of an advancement. And then you ended up at the, uh, the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. And so we both spent a lot of time in the, in the nonprofit world. Yep. If you can, can you separate 
and tell me what was difficult then as a young professional in the nonprofit space um, that you experienced at that time? Like what was just, what were some of the, just the big challenges um, in that space as, as a professional? Um, I think that it's, it's similar to many things that I see um, today that people, especially young professionals complain about. It's, it's, it's kind of like that, that sturm and drain, right? Like I want experience, but I'm young. Uh, you want education, but I'm young, you know, so there, people are looking for this unicorn a lot of times, and it's hard to get the experience if people won't give you the experience. Uh, you know, education is something you can do, but then do I want to go into debt? You know, so it's kind of all yeah. these kind of value propositions that you have to think about. And so um, at the time in Cincinnati, you know, again, I'm in a new, a new city, don't know anybody really, mm -hmm. uh, don't know, anybody, don't know anybody at all, except for uh, the guy who got me the job and then he left like three weeks, three months later. <laughs> so I really didn't know anybody. So again, I kind of had to sink or swim uh, and figure out what I was gonna do. But it was just getting involved. You know, I did some volunteer projects, shout out to folks with, you know, Give Back Cincinnati. I met a ton of folks just, you know, going out doing community programs or painting houses or, you know, they had all kind of just random stuff to do. Uh, and I just met people, you know, I, I feel just in re rethinking mentorship, particularly for young people. Uh, I think that a lot of times you develop relationships with people by working on something, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if two people, you'll have no idea anything about each other, at least you have that in common. Yeah. So I just, you know, I got out of my apartment, you know, I got out of my apartment. I looked on the internet, which was a little better at this time, you know, 20, 2007, 2008. Yeah. And like I said, I just, you know, and I'm, a lot of people think that I'm extroverted, but I'm still, I'm kind of introverted and shy sometimes too, but I just know that I have to, I have to intentionally push myself out of that shell because of a lot of the stuff that I like to do, I have to talk to a lot of people. Yeah. So I can't be shy <laughs> in public facing roles. So a lot of it is just, you know, again, stepping outside of your comfort zone, being okay with just being uncomfortable. Uh, but what you meet are a lot of people who are really nice. You know, and he'll be like, hey, I know this thing happening over there, or I know this event happening here. And, you know, at the Freedom Center, I had a chance to have a lot of, um, as my role there evolved, to bring in different events, you know, Sonia Sanchez or Cornell mm -hmm. West or uh, Bootsy Collins, who I did, who ironically is like one of the nicest people I've ever met in the world. Bootsy Good Collins man. and his wife. Good man, um, Five Sigma. Yeah. Oh, is he? Okay, I didn't mm -hmm. know it. Uh, but he's in Cincinnati. But you know, put on events and um, so you know, uh, met Lionel Richie, good brother, Alpha Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. You know, so it was just like I was just around a lot of different stuff. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of it was it was the Urban League thing again. It was kind of like all right, a bunch of people had started to leave. I was doing increased work, uh, and I was like, hey, what's popping with a promotion? And they were kind of like, well, you know, we'll just. And so I was like, all right. So a lady who had left, so to your previous point, she had left and gone on consulting on some diversity line, uh, development lines. And she said, hey, you wanted to be an ED, an executive director of an organization one day, right? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, I got this gig coming down the pipe and I'm screening applicants. You want me to throw your name in the list? And I was like, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so she did and, you know, 
uh, I became the executive director of uh, the Cincinnati affiliate of an organization called Friends with the Children, um, which probably is like the water, one of the watershed moments of my professional and personal life. Um, that position for all the best reasons and all the worst reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, so to your point, you know, I just kind of let some bread comes out there. Like I'm, I always tell people, you know, you want to guard your dreams, but with some people you have to tell because if you don't tell anybody, then yeah. nobody can like hook you up. <laughs> you know, you got to tell people here and there, just kind of a general idea. And like, that's what I've always kind of done. Like, you know, I'm open, you know, and I, and, and also with the Urban League piece, I learned to really never be that entrenched into an organization. Like absolutely, the, the person who I look out for, number one is me. Now I've been blessed to work at places that I believe in their mission and aligns with my personal mission. And I haven't had to do anything to compromise my values or beliefs. But when a situation is not working for me anymore, I don't have any reservation about leaving. Yeah. Like immediately if I can. So, um, so I left. Man, that's a, this is a, um, and we may need to have a, a Facebook live session with a few other folks on what you just said. You said two things. One is that um, you don't get too entrenched in an organization. And then two is when essentially you feel like the organization no longer serves you or your goals or your, your path or trajectory, it's time to go. And that's an art that you learn, you know, I've had to learn it. Um, you know, fortunately I learned very early on <laughs> getting fired from an organization that I was just so, um, I won't say passionate about, but I was like the company man. You were bought yeah. into it. I was bought into it. And then, you know, that was back at Eastern and then I got fired and it was like, oh, that just rocked my whole world. But it, it taught me a variable, a very valuable lesson early on is to not be so entrenched um, in it to where you have no identity and you don't have any moves uh, available to you. Um, so I think we, we may need to break that out a little bit. Like, how do you get to that point? How do you protect your career, personal brand, but also not seem so much like in, in, uh, an individual that you can't benefit a team? Because there's there's that opposite uh, end of the, the uh, spectrum as well as some people you see and they're like, you're so into yourself that I don't think you'd be a good fit here because you don't seem like a team player, which can mean different things to different people. Um, and I remember those experiences at uh, when you were at the, uh, the Friends of the Children. Um, being an ED is not easy. You know, I've never been an ED. I've worked very close to EDs enough to know yeah. that that is something that I have no interest in at this point in my career. Yeah. Um, and, and so you moved on. And what caused you or prompted you to move from the nonprofit sector into education? Like what, what was the motivation behind that? Um, well, really it wasn't my choice. <laughs> um, you know, the organ and that, so I can't say I got fired. The organization just kind of ceased to exist because mm -hmm. one thing that I learned is to ask better questions. So when you are looking for a job, you need to interview the job as much as the job is interviewing you. Absolutely. Um, and part of that is, you know, so to your point about kind of the, um, not one to seem so separate, but, you know, I know that I'm dope. You know, I do good work. I know my lane. I know what I do really well. 
And so you kind of have to have that belief in yourself, like, I can go and get another job. Like, it may not be this job, but I can go get a job. I can support myself. If, if I go and be a barista at Starbucks, I can learn it. I'm sure they got training programs. I can go do that. Um, now, I think that's what ties a lot of people. Um, in addition to um, building a life that's sustainable, you know, like I can afford lots of stuff, but I don't because I don't want to be financially tied to a position that no longer serves me. Absolutely. And I, and I have to be there uh, because I have to afford, I have to pay for this lifestyle that I built up for myself. So you I know, know you, very you've, you've shared that. that with me. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about careers just every day, uh, I feel like. Yeah. And you shared that with me once. Um, you drop all kinds of gems in our conversation. I don't know if you noticed, but I'll, you know, I'll reference them later. Nah, but you did, <laughs> no, but but what you just said, I think is key. And you know, you said, you know, you can afford a lot of things, but you you don't. Um, and essentially you don't want to you don't want to be a slave to the lifestyle you've built because of the job. And and that's being responsible with your finances. You know, there's there's that allure of making a ton of money and then buying a bunch of things, buying, you know, going into debt. You got a bunch of bills that's going out. You know, we know people that are like that, have a great lifestyle, but they also have a, a, a debt to income ratio. It's probably like 90%. But um, but that's key. And that stuck with me. And, you know, I keep that in mind as I manage my finances. Like, you know, I make a decent amount of money, but I also like to be able to save. And if something were to happen to me and I had to, you know, take, take a job or something that paid less or something big came up, I had the flexibility to do that. And that's real. So I just want to pull that piece out. That's, you know, that's something that I, I feel like um, we don't talk about enough, especially in, um, in black households, just, you know, creating a life that's sustainable and enjoyable and you have a life of options. Yeah. And I didn't have that when friends of the children, you know, through a variety of unfortunate circumstances you know some of some being my fault most not being my fault um really it was just a house kind of built on sand with an unstable foundation and um it just ended you know so I, it, yeah it, it just it, it was just over and like i had never lost a job before <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what do you do like i don't what do you I, do i not get money anymore like i mean i know it sounds crazy but like i was really like I don't know what happens. Like, do I just not get money anymore? Like, yeah. what do I what do I do on Monday? And you remember, I mean, that's where I kind of came. <laughs> yeah, you know, start Starbucks thugging. You know, yep. where yep. at the time you had the Starbucks Gold um, membership, and you yep. could get free refills. And so <laughs> I would go to the Starbucks like right across from my apartment in Cincinnati, and um, I would post up. I would buy the smallest cup of coffee that I could. And free I would refill. literally post up all day and just get free refills because I was trying to manage, you know, I was buying like bread and rice and peanut butter. And like, that was like, so, you know, again, it kind of put me into, you know, I had to figure it out. Like I couldn't just like wait, like I had to figure out unemployment and, you know, getting my $300 a week or whatever. And like, <laughs> um, I mean, I had to figure it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, I didn't want to like really put it on my parents because, you know, even like good, I, I good think- note at that point. Yeah, you know, yeah, you kind of, you kind of <laughs> like, you always mama's baby, right? But like, at some point, like, I got to figure this out. Like, I got to yeah. be a man, I got to be an adult and like, figure this out. So, 
um, shout out to another guy. You know, I had become um, uh, involved with the uh, uh, 100 Black Men affiliate in um, Cincinnati. Uh, shout out to uh, John Moore, uh, owner of Moore Air in Cincinnati. Hit him up if you're in Cincinnati for all your heating and cooling needs. Um, shout but out. He, yeah, but I mean, again, just just blessed with like all these angels in my life. And like, you know, recently, well, a couple of years ago, I was just telling people just unsolicited, like what they really meant to me. Because, you know, he was very successful in his position before he owned his own company. Um and like I hit like my car, I, I had I had this Lincoln, which I thought was like awesome, um, but didn't realize how much luxury cars cost to maintain. And so like I had a really bad um, uh, car repair at this time, which kind of like just zapped my finances. And I was like, God, could anything get any worse? And so like I was on the side of the road, my car had broken down, and like I didn't know who to call. And I just on a flyer, I just called John like. I'm sorry, like, I don't know who else to call. Like, you're going to get me. <laughs> and I'll never forget, he um, he picked me up. You know, we waited for the tow truck. He, uh, before he brought me back to my apartment, he said, let's go get a beer. I remember because it was like the summertime. And he just sat me down. We got a beer. And he was like, man, what's popping? And I told him, I was like, I'm just in a bad situation. He was like, okay. So during that time, um, Cincinnati Public Schools was launching a program for African-American males and they were trying to get the 100 black men to participate. And so he called me like, hey, because he was the president at this time. He's like, hey, I just got this call. I know you ain't busy because you ain't got no job. <laughs> so I arrived to this meeting with me. Mm -hmm. And so we went and the guy, Eric Thomas, who was the director of innovation at CPS was like, you know, kind of rolling out the program. And it became apparent to me that they did not have anybody to run this program at the time. And so John was like, oh, you should hire Charles. And like, I'm sitting here like, huh? Okay. <laughs> you know, so again, you know, so within a month's time, you know, I had that position working at CPS. So again, just relationships, like I was, I was down bad. Like I didn't really have a way to go you know, and he's the one who kind of put that out there for me. So that's really how I got formally into um, the district, which kind of catapulted me when I met my wife, my now wife in Louisville. Um, it was good that I could make that transition from one kind of large public urban yeah. school district to another, so. So thinking about, um, you know, you worked at Cincinnati Public Schools you, in, um, in Cincinnati, you've worked with the Jefferson County Public Schools in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, you know, I've, I've had encounters, well, I was encounters, I've had experience working with a public school system as well. Uh, so I'm always curious, you know, what, if you can't share, what are some of the barriers you saw, uh, preventing students from, from being the, the best that they can be? Um, or, you know, what are some of the gaps that you saw in both of your roles, um, over the uh, war program in <clears throat> Cincinnati and then the, um, as the uh, inclusion coordinator at uh, JCPS? I think the biggest thing is access. Um, you know, I speak freely, you know, in general, white kids are allowed to fail over and over and over and over and over again. Black kids have like one time and they out. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's so many which, 
when I was with my position in CPS, like it was cool because, you know, like black male stuff was kind of like, you know, it was the thing at the time, like Steve Perry, you know, with his <laughs> capital prep and, you know, yeah. you know, we had the time. Actually, you designed, did you, you designed something for me, I think, a couple of things with the more program in Cincinnati that yeah. is still going on now. Um, but when I would like go to these convenings and something just kind of started because it wasn't sitting right with me because like the whole focus was like, I felt like putting kids in bow ties and showing how, how good they could stand like up. Respectability project, uh, pro, uh, yeah. respectability politics type. Yeah. And it was cool to see because like when you see all the boys, like they did look dope and like the orange and blue ties and you know, all that. But then when I would kind of just be on the periphery and listening to the conversations, it was like, you know, oh, they're so articulate. And then, oh, they just, and it just started to like not sit right with me. And that, like, that's where I kind of, which I think got me the job in Cincinnati, in Louisville, because I was like, you know, we can't program our way out of these problems. Yeah. You know, we have to begin addressing policies. <clears throat> and so that's really what I began to sink my teeth into in Louisville is getting down to the nitty gritty of like, okay, a thing happened, but like, why did it happen? And really learning how to read board policy, learning how to read laws, learning how to understand budgets, which is one of the things that prompted me to go and get the um, education finance certificate from Georgetown, yeah. because I would be sitting in these meetings and like, I didn't, I didn't know how to move the numbers around like everybody else did. So I was like, I don't necessarily want to get an MBA, but I need to know better than this. Um, and so I was like, well, let me apply to this position and, you know, add, you know, sharpen the saw a bit. But I think the thing is that education is, it's kind of like one of those known unknowns. Like everybody, everybody has gone to school. Everybody has put a kid into school if you have a kid, but there's this upper echelon where education people really like to keep the conversation. And that's away from the layperson. You know, it's a lot of acronyms, IEPs, 504s, you know, ADA, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so you just kind of have to trust that that educator means the best for your child, which they may or may not. And so what I try, what I have tried to do over my career is demystify education. Um, tell people what these acronyms mean. Tell people you need to go and ask about this board policy or this school policy. So like, for instance, you know, in some consulting work that I do with a number of districts around the city, the country now, um, one thing that I'm really beginning to learn looking at the data is when you look at disproportionalities and suspensions, um, you know, they have codes, you know, you fought, you brought a gun, you know, that's really apparent, right? But so many districts have this code that's either like disruptive behavior or uh, didn't follow code of conduct or something blanket, 90% of the suspensions fall into that category. The rest fall between everything else from arson to beat somebody up, to, you know? And so when I ask this district and I say, what's, can you tease apart what's in that 90%? Like they can't do it or they won't do it. And like, those are the kind of things when you start to look at the, when I said the demystifying ed education, mm -hmm. it's asking those tough questions. Like what did my kid really get suspended for? Because when you look in at disruptive behavior in one district, it ranges from a kid talked back because he they made him take his hoodie down to a kid threw a chair across the room. So you don't know what your kid is getting suspended for, you know? And like, they just say, you got suspended. All right, go home for five days. And that's what is really the antecedent of this, this, this prison pipeline. 
And you can see it in the world, you know, somebody's walking around, you look suspicious, get up on the wall. Oh, you got a warrant. Now you go to jail. Oh, you can't afford the bail. Now you got to sit there. Oh, you got to sit there uh, for uh, five days. A judge isn't free. Okay, now you're sitting there a month. It's the same thing. Like that's the real uh, manifestation of the prison to the, the, the school to prison pipeline is that it mirrors and even some of the language. So I think that parents just need to be more active, not active, but because I always black parents are as as active or more active than their white counterparts in many regards. But it's knowing how to ask the right questions. And so if you can find people or educators who are helpful to help you to navigate, um, I know in some cities, they've started nonprofits for parent education classes to know what questions to ask. One of the things that we spearheaded in JCPS was um, a series of kind of one pages called the first task is to ask which are basically 10 questions about anything. It could be about your grades, discipline, school choice, whatever. But you can literally take this one pager into the school and ask the teacher, where's my child with this? Where's my child with this? Where's my child with this? And they need to have answers. And you don't need to leave that school until they answer your questions because that's your child. And nobody's gonna advocate for your child like you are. So I think that's the thing. Um, there's always power in numbers. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen 50 white parents line up at a board meeting because they were going to take away the tutoring room in a the school. Mm-hmm. They all had on the same color. They all had the same party line. They all, you know, they were like assassins. It wasn't like ranting and raving and screaming. They just all came up there and read from the same paper because they got two minutes to speak. They all took one minute, 30 seconds, every one of them. And like the board was shook. Yeah. And they didn't do it, you know? And I'm just like, wow, this is wild. This yeah. is really crazy. So, you know, that's a, that's just one kind of perspective. But um, yeah, I think that if I had to sum it up, it's being a vocal advocate because nobody's going to advocate for your child the way that you are. So fast forward, you left JCPS and you earned your uh, doctorate. Yep. And you've now come back into the nonprofit space with Evolve uh, 502. Um, what is going to be different for you in your approach in the nonprofit space, you know, knowing what you've, uh, you know, knowing what you know now, this new education um, and your, all your years working in education is, you know, public school education as well. Like what's gonna be different in your approach uh, with Evolve 502? Um, <clears throat> now I know what I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know, right? And so I think that because I've spent so much time straddling all these lines, even, you know, my short stay in the private sector, um, really what I try to be is a translator um, because I find I've worked under the paradigm of cross-sector collaboration. So how do all these different sectors work together to support kids? And what I found is through my research and just, you know, my own practice is that people all want the same things. They just speak different languages. So schools don't necessarily speak private sector language and schools don't necessarily speak nonprofit language and vice versa. So what I do is bring all these people around the table. So every week I have a, you know, I call it kind of the educational war room since we've had COVID, you know, I'm bringing together the superintendent of, you know, the 29th largest school district in the country. I got the superintendent. I got the chief impact officer from my local United Way. I got a director of education from the Urban League. 
I got a program officer from one of the larger um, philanthropic agencies. I got a rep from the mayor's office. And there's like, there's only like eight of us, but we're sitting in and we're like, okay, here's the problem. How do we solve it? What, what resources can you push to the table to solve these problems? And so having all of us together um, and having the conversation, not in a back room or not in the meeting after the meeting, it's, it's catapulted us into being, actually we call the name of the meeting, the rapid response group, because we can rapidly respond. Like we don't have to put anything in from the board of education. We don't have to send it to city council. Like there's a lot that we can get done. So, you know, we've been supporting like almost, well, over 2,500 kids, you know, during uh, school shutdown uh, with NTI, you know, we've raised, like, I raised like a million dollars in like three months to push directly out to support kids, to support families, to support organizations. Um, I mean, we've just been like clocking, you know, I work with, you know, a group at Harvard and we've got like Louisville's kind of become their, their, uh, their baby around this work. But it was because again, we didn't have anything else to lose, you know, in April last year, like <laughs> we didn't know what to do. Yeah. But I was like, if we don't jump in, um, then nothing is going to happen. So I don't know what it's going to look like, but we just got to do something. And so, um, I think the thing that I've learned is I don't want to be an executive director. <laughs> that you mentioned it's not for the faint of heart not at this point in my life anyway yeah um i always say people who have never people who always want to lead have never led anything because being a leader is if you're a good leader i'll say that if you're a bad leader you don't really care but to have people's livelihoods their family's livelihoods your physical plant like the building you walk in every day i mean like when i was at friends with the children we had our air conditioner stolen twice i mean i was 27 like where do i buy an industrial grade <laughs> air conditioner i don't yeah. know you know you gotta set up the phone lines. you know i think a lot of people take advantage take for granted that you walk in every day and no the wi-fi works like we had to get phones we had to paint we had to pull up old carpet we had to get the pot you know and as an ED, you have to project manage all that in Absolutely. addition to accomplishing your mission. Raising and money. And so I just, <laughs> yeah, and you got to raise the money to make, like I said, sure your 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 staff is whole, your benefits are whole, um, and not just their benefits if they got kids. Like that's stressful. And at 27, I was like, I don't want no more parts. Like this is too much. Uh at 40, about to be 42. I still don't want any parts. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would have to be the right kind of an organization. I mean, I would definitely do it like at a more established organization. Uh, being kind of like one of these plucky startups, which we are, Evolve 502, but we got a little bit more cachet and more commitments at the table. And like I said, I asked those questions. When I came to the table, I was like, tell me your budget. What's your 18 month? What's your sustainability look like? Like, again, I was interviewing them as much as they were interviewing me. Yeah. And if they if their answers were not, what I wanted, I was not going to go because, you know, I took like a $40,000 pay cut to leave the district. But again, it wasn't serving me anymore. Yeah. When I get to the point where I don't want to walk into my job anymore, um, I don't need to be there just for my yeah. personal sanity. Cause like if I die tomorrow, they'll just hire somebody and step over my body and keep rolling. Yeah. So, you know, I took a pretty substantial pay cut, but I had set up my life in a way that I didn't really, I was able to move it around. You know, so um, it's just all about choices and like, what kind of life do you want to live? Uh, and I've decided what kind of life that I want to live. And so it's it's very easy for me to understand which things fit into that schema and which things don't. Like to me, it's not, I don't have these agonizing, like like this right here is my dream job. Okay. You know, in my, This is what I want to be doing. 
Um, but the moment that it's not what I want to be doing, then <laughs> I won't be doing it. Um, but right now it's, it's awesome. And so it, if everybody, I think, kind of just thinks about what they want their life to be, it becomes really easy to understand which moves you should make and which moves you should not make. Sounds good. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot to take away from that. So I have two, two questions for you, two trick questions. Um, yep. What's your favorite book and why? Um, I would have, so it's not really a book. It's like more of an anthology. I figured you were probably asking something like this. So I had been kind of thinking about it. <laughs> um, but um, it's actually a W.E.B. Du Bois reader by David Levering Lewis. Um, uh, du Bois, I think, is like one of the most brilliant, not just black people, but people who have ever walked the planet. And the fact that he just lived so long and was prolific um, until he died is yeah. just astonishing to me. And, but more than that, so while I like the reader, it just kind of has a wide breadth of his readings. And so there's really two things that I appreciate. One is that he changed his mind. You know, when he put the Talented Tenth out there, he recognized that it didn't really, you know, people people hold on to the Talented Tenth, but, you know, a lot of people don't know that he changed his perspective on the Talented Tenth because mm -hmm. he felt like it was not working because the Talented Tenth should go back to communities and lift everybody up, but the talented tenth was just going to make their own fortune. And so even this brilliant man changed his mind, you know, which I think a lot of people just get so dug into a position that they don't have the ability to change their mind. Yeah. And the other thing is just how transparent he was. Like he when he wrote about his first wife passing, and then when he wrote about his child passing, like those are two of my favorite writings because he just I just feel like there was nothing that he was willing to, he was gonna put everything on the plate for his people, no matter what, like, this is what I'm going through. This is my challenge. This is how I'm hurting, um, but I'm still gonna press forward. Like, I'm gonna take a bit, I'm gonna grieve, and then I'm gonna keep marching forward. And so um, I just love reading his perspectives. I mean, literally over 90 years, how his just mind evolved and his perspective evolved. Gotcha. If you could meet any person alive or not living, who would it be? Or have a coffee date with them, who would it be? Uh, my grandfather, my, my mother's father. Uh, for a, a long time, I didn't really feel like how I felt, how I fit into my family. Um, you know, we both have interesting senses of humor. <laughs> you know, um, you know, my dad was very serious. You know, my mom is very kind of just doting and caring and stuff, but Hearing stories about my grandfather, he passed when I was six months old. Um, but I just, and my, my mom says, like, even when I'm, like, walking away from her, she says I look like him when I'm, like, uh, in some of my mannerisms. And so I would have loved to just meet him because he just seems like such a, he was hilarious, apparently. Always a jokester. Um, Sounds familiar. Everybody respects him. Everybody respected him. And he was actually a teacher, uh, like, back in the country, you know, where a teacher was. But he, uh, um, with just kind of a, a community anchor in a regard. Um, and like that transferred to my grandmother after he passed, but he just seemed like such an awesome cat. Like I would love to just meet him and chop it up with him. Well, you dropped a lot of, a lot of good information on us today. And you know, some of the stuff I didn't even know, uh, you know, not a whole lot, but I knew quite a bit because we do talk a lot. 
but it was good to share some of the conversations that we have on a daily basis um, and just kind of provide that context for our listeners. And so I appreciate you taking out some time um, on your your busy day to kind of chop it up with the, the League of Leaders and how can folks get in touch with you? Uh, Well, Kevin, the guru, he's helping me redevelop my website, but <laughs> drcharlesdavis.com <laughs> is a great place um, to start. Also on LinkedIn, I don't know if you have, uh, Kevin is a social media guru. I'm less so, because um, I just never think anybody wants to get in contact with me. But uh, I'm always down to just education and mentorship is in my heart. So particularly for people trying to just find their way in spaces, I'm always down for a conversation or to provide advice, um, which again, why I try to be so transparent, you know, so that you can avoid the mistakes that I've made or you can learn um, from the things. Because I, yeah. to me, there's no point in me having all these failures and successes. I can't pass them on. So. I'm always willing to uh, help, and if you got a district who needs to get they get their house in order, uh, me and my consulting team we're always available for that as well. Come in and uh, come in to pull they pull their data through the ringer. See what we find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Until next time, um, the League of Leaders, please share and subscribe to the podcast. Until then, I am your host, Kevin Davis. <laughs>